We look at John chapter 6 this morning. John chapter 6. It says, After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then Jesus, seeing that the large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where will we buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to feed each of them just a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so when they sat down, about the number of 5,000 of men, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to them who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had taken their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to, make, to come and to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. In verse 25, it tells us, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what, 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 must we be, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, What sign do you do that, you may, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses that gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you all that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. In verse 41, it tells us, And the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? We pick it up again in verse 66. It says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen. Oh, it's good to be together at church. 
Uh, I'm glad we get to, to be here and look at the Word this morning. You know, sometimes it's difficult to find the difference between trash and treasure. Is that true? Have you ever found uh, that experience? The difference between the things that are real and the things that are fake. Uh, that kind of came close to home for, for Susan and I a couple years ago. Uh, we decided uh, that we, we wanted to be antiquers. Now we're getting closer to being antiques all the time, but we wanted to, to be, never mind. Uh, we, we, we wanted to, mostly me, not Susan. Uh, we, we wanted to be antiquers and we wanted to go. And so they're not far from where we live. There was the town of Washington and they have this old schoolhouse antique place. You can see it's a couple stories tall there. That whole place is just full of antique vendors or vendors of antiques. And so uh, we decided to go there, got up early on a Saturday morning and we started to go through there. Now, we, we had two different strategies for that event. I wanted to find an old original copy of the Declaration of Independence. That, that's all I'm asking for. Uh, just something, you know, tucked in a book that would be worth millions of dollars. That's all I'm asking for. Pretty simple life uh, that I'm looking for. Now, Susan, she wanted to find something that would look nice in our house reasonable. Uh, and so I didn't ever find a copy of the Declaration of Independence, uh, but she did find two or three little metal trays that, that were there and they had nice color and she could see where they would go with the house and she determined that she had walked every inch of that place and that was the piece that she wanted. And so though the pieces that she wanted, I'm like, sure, they look nice. I'll take your word for it. I'm sure that they match. Uh, really nice, kind of had a look of some age to it, but still had enough color to them. Really nice. Took them home found a nice place uh, for them. And, and then the next week, we, uh, we went to Hobby Lobby. Yeah, those exact same pieces were right there in Hobby Lobby for less money than what we had paid for at the antique show. But sometimes it is difficult to tell the difference between this thing that is real, authentic, the real deal, and this thing that only looks like the real deal. It's hard to tell the difference between what's true and what's false, what's real and what's fake, what's treasure and what is not treasure, the real genuine articles. Now sometimes that's also a difficulty outside of an antique cottage or wherever it is that you may be. Sometimes it's difficult to tell the difference between what's genuine and not genuine spiritually as well. In fact, just six months ago, and back in August, uh, there was a major survey done uh, of Americans, and 70% of all Americans identified themselves as Christians. Now, that's a really, really high number. Have you been outside lately? Did it feel like you were surrounded by 70% followers of Christ who had given their lives and their heart and servant spirit uh, to Christ? I, I, I don't know. Sometimes there's a confusion because we're not sure exactly what we mean when we say, I'm a Christian. Sometimes we might say, well, that's a Christian thing to do. And what we mean by that is it's just kind. It's nice. It's, it's generous. Sometimes we think in terms of being Christian is, well, of course I'm Christian. I'm a God-fearing uh, American. Sometimes when we say uh, I'm Christian, what we're talking about is, well, yeah, I'm not a believer in one of those weird religions. Of course, I'm Christian. It may be that my family was Christian. It may be that I have a church that I go to every once in a while. It may be that I own a Bible, and I think I know where, where it is. Different definitions of what it means to be a Christian. But how do we know what's real 
and what's genuine and what bears the resemblance. Now the reason why I bring this up is because when we look here at John chapter 6, we're going to see crowds of people that say, I am with Jesus. Jesus matters to me more than anything else. And then at the end of the chapter, we're going to see a completely different story. How can we tell out of those crowds which are the true disciples? The good news that I have for you this morning is that it is possible that you can step out from the crowd and that you can be a true disciple. That is a possibility for your life that you won't be just one of the folks that just kind of claim the name, but it will be true. It will be the reality of your life that you truly are a true disciple of Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask that you would make your word so clear and so understandable. Lord, I pray that as we unpack this passage of Scripture, Lord, it won't just be knowledge, but it'll speak straight to our heart and lead us to action. We pray these things in your name. Amen. As we look at John chapter 6, it's kind of interesting because the chapter begins one way and ends a completely different way. At the beginning of John chapter 6, the crowds are coming to Jesus. They are massive numbers of crowds, and their fascination, their intrigue, their interest, they're, 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 they're making Jesus to be so important to them is, is just, you, we can't quite capture enough words. In fact, it's so much to the point that Jesus is there with his disciples. He has gathered his disciples, but what comes is this crush of crowds beyond the disciples. He set this time aside. Let me teach my disciples. But the crowds are the ones that come in, and they've seen the signs, the miracles uh, that Jesus has done. And in fact, the crowd is so large, and they are so committed to staying with Jesus that Jesus has to look at one of the disciples and says, how are we going to feed all these? folks. And he says, listen, man, if we chipped in eight months of wages, we could only just feed these folks scraps. This is impossible for us to do. The thing is that the people were coming, and they were so committed to Jesus' message that they stayed right through lunch. They stayed right through dinner. You couldn't get them to go away. You ever have some people come visit your house that you couldn't get rid of? Anyone, don't point at anybody, but they come and they just stay and they don't know when it's time to leave. That's what this crowd did with Jesus. They didn't know it was time to leave. It gets to the point that Jesus has to kind of slip away and he's trying to get away by himself and then he meets the disciples on the other side of the lake and the people wake up the next day and say, well, where did Jesus go? And they are willing to travel all the way around the lake to find Jesus and say, we found you. In other words, they didn't want to leave. And they're basically at the point where they're going to say, we'll follow you, Jesus, anywhere you go. We will find you and we will follow you. We are so committed to seeking you. In fact, in the middle of this chapter, it tells us that they were so committed to Jesus that they determined that they wanted to make Jesus their king. And they wanted to set up a ceremony right there in the middle of that field and say, we want Jesus to be our king. Now, all of that sounds really, really great. But by the end of the chapter, that same crowd is hitting the exits about as fast as those Alabama fans hit the exits Monday night after that last interception. 
I don't know. I went to bed. But, um, but they are leaving as fast as they possibly can. What happens in the middle? Part of the issue that happens is that we discover that for every single person that wants to interact with Jesus, there are some obstacles to true discipleship. There are some things that stand in the way between saying, I, I want to identify myself as a person with Jesus, but there are some things that get in the way that keep people from being true disciples. Well, let's take a look at, at some of those obstacles uh, this morning. Uh, the first one is that there is an obstacle of authority. There is an obstacle of authority. Uh, the question here is, who is in charge? Now, we talk about this obstacle of authority, and we talk about authority every once in a while. And, and sometimes we, we really would prefer not to because authority just sounds like an ugly word. But the truth that we have to understand is that when we come and we come before God and we come before Jesus, the question of authority is always going to be on the table. We can't come to Jesus without dealing with the question of authority. And we see this in this whole conversation about the fact that they wanted to make Jesus king. Now, we have a little bit of a difficulty ourselves because most of us have never lived in a place with a king. For us, all of our rulers are people that we have chosen. They are only our ruler for a temporary period of time, and there are limits on their authority. And so that's good government. We, we like that. We understand that. That is right. But that's not what a king is. A king is kind of given to you. It is mandated to you. You don't have a choice about who your king is. Your king is not going anywhere whether you like them or whether you don't like them. They are permanent. They are there for life. And then when they're gone, their, their kid gets to become king or queen uh, after them. And basically, there are no limits to their authority. You can't impeach the king. Uh, the, the king doesn't the king has ultimate authority. And so there's this whole conversation here about whether Jesus is going to be their king. And in fact, it tells us that Jesus slips away because they wanted to make him king. Now, on one sense, that doesn't make sense because we kind of thought that Jesus came. The whole reason why he came was to be king. That, 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 that's his natural state that he is king. So why would Jesus slip away when they were trying to make him king? The issue here, and it's right there in the middle of the verse, it says they were trying to make him king by force. In other words, they were going to rise up. And they were going to tell Jesus, you have to be our king. And here are the things that you need to do because you are our king. Now let's step back just for a moment. If the crowd rises up, puts a crown on Jesus, makes Jesus king by force, and tells Jesus what to do, who's really in charge there? It's the crowd. The crowd has set the agenda. The crowd has determined this is what's going to happen. And one of the things that Jesus is going to make clear is that he is the one who is the authority. If you just use Jesus as a puppet that you can manipulate and move around and just use him for his power and his authority and his ability and all the things that he can do and the miracles that he can do, 
then there's a problem with the authority. You're not looking for God, you're looking for a genie who grants wishes. We don't just say, God, would you do these things for me? In fact, there are people who today might give thought to where they stand in terms of their faith and in terms of their relationship with Jesus. And in fact, they might even say something that says, I would believe, I would follow Jesus, but I'm not going to do any of the stuff that I don't want to do. Jesus, I'm with you. I'm a follower. Put my name on, on myself. That I Put your name on me. I am a Christian, but, but I'm only doing the stuff that I already want to do. Well, that's not, that's not what it means to be a disciple. There, there, there's a breakdown in that place where they said, Jesus, we're going to make you king so that you do the things that we want you to do. That remains an obstacle. And so there are some people who say, I want to be with Jesus, but I kind of want to still be in charge. And that is a barrier, an obstacle that keeps people from being a true disciple. I would also tell you that there's an obstacle of priority. There's an obstacle of priority, and this is the obstacle that says, what do you really want? What is it that you really want? This whole chapter just kind of, I won't say it spins out of control, but it gets a little bit off track because they're going from, Jesus, we want you to be king, to Jesus, would you make us lunch? Man, they loved that lunch yesterday. And they loved the fact that they showed up, they were hungry, they didn't bring any provisions, they didn't make any plans for food, there was no food anywhere around. Then some kid shows up with his, with his Scooby-Doo lunchbox, Jesus takes the contents of the Scooby-Doo lunchbox, it wasn't really a Scooby-Doo lunchbox, but you get the idea, Take, takes the contents of that lunchbox and he feeds 5,000 plus people in that place. And their wheels and their mind begin to turn and say, man, if we could get free lunch every day. I mean, if, if, if Jesus would just give us lunch every single day, that would give me a lot more resources that I could spend anywhere. In fact, I probably might not even have to work as much as I have to do. Because if he can feed me, he can probably feed the rest of my family. And boy, my, my whole life is simply trying to figure out where I'm going to get food, money for food. If Jesus took care of that, then, then, man, I wouldn't have anything to worry about. And so they're part of the reason why they're chasing Jesus is, man, lunch is coming. What's for lunch today, Jesus? And they begin to be fixated on this question of lunch. Jesus describes to them and says, I am the bread of life. And they heard, I am the bread of lunch. That they can't get past lunch. Now, sometimes there are days that I wake up first thing in the morning, I say, I wonder what lunch is. Uh, I have that, that tendency. But, but this is this fixation that they have. And Jesus wants to talk about that he is the bread of life. He is the one who has come from the Father. He is the sustenance for life. If you want to know God, you have to consume him. He is it. And they're like, yeah, but what about lunch? And Jesus says, listen, if you want to know the work of God, then you have to believe the one who sent him. And they're like, really? 
If you want to know God, you have to believe. The work of God is to believe the one who sent Jesus because he is the bread of life. And they say, well, if we're going to believe in you, we need a sign. We need some evidence. We need some proof. We need some divine, dramatic thing that says this is true. Now keep in mind, the whole reason they went out into these fields to follow Jesus is because they had already seen and heard all of the signs that Jesus was doing. Keep in mind that there were people probably in that crowd that had been healed already by Jesus. Keep in mind that they had all eaten out of that kid's lunchbox. But now they say, well, Jesus, if you want us to believe you like that, we're going to need a sign. You know what a good sign would be? In the Old Testament, God gave bread from heaven. Maybe you could give us a... They can't get off of lunch. They can't stop thinking about lunch. And Jesus again says to them, it's me. I am the bread of heaven. It's not about lunch. You see, lunch is temporary. But what I'm offering to you is for all time, and it is for eternal. And sometimes we want to pursue Jesus because we have this idea that if I will follow Jesus, if I will get my life right, if I'll line things up with God, then my, my household will get better, my family will get better, my job will get better, my finances will get better, my other relationships will get better, all of my school will get better, all the things that I do will get better if I follow Jesus. Listen, the Bible is an entire collection of stories about people whose immediate life got more difficult because they followed and were obedient to God. Take a look at the story of, oh, I don't know, Jesus, who was perfection, the most obedient person to the Father that ever lived, who was God himself. Have you read the story? He is attacked. He is criticized. He is surrounded by conflict. His life is taken away from him in the most brutal way possible. But he did it for the joy that was set before him for the longer term. He did it for the glory that would be poured upon him in eternity. Because it's not just about right now. And the obstacle that we face here is if we're just interested in right now, we're going to miss out on the bigness of what God wants to do. There are folks that are saying, I just want lunch. And he says, I want to give you life. Life eternal to last forever. And there are some people today that would say, I would follow Jesus if I can have my best life now. I'm in it if every part of my life will take an uptick, not necessarily today, but in the next six weeks. That, that, that's, that's what I'm looking for. And because that's how some people come, that's not what Jesus is offering. He is offering eternal life. 
He is offering himself. He is saying, you will be able to consume me. And if we still want Jesus to just add to our life a list of playthings, then that's going to be an obstacle in our life. So for some time, for some people, what causes them to, to fall away before full faith is the question of authority. I only want to do the things I want to do. For some folks, it's an obstacle of priority. Well, I, I want the stuff now. I'll worry about later, later. And for some folks, there is an obstacle of proximity. There's an obstacle of proximity. When this thing suddenly starts to go a little bit sour, and they discovered that Jesus isn't packing lunches today, and that Jesus is talking about the eternal instead of the right now, they, they, they get a little out of shape about it. And in fact, suddenly, what we see here is we see what I call the Galilee problem. You see, the Gospel of John bounces back and forth between the south and the north. And the south is where Jerusalem is. It's the south is where the temple is. It's the south where the religious leaders are. It's the south where most of the controversies come into play. In the north is Galilee. It's the fishermen. It's the farmers. In the north, it's the crowds. In the north, for a lot of time, it's Jesus' popularity. And that's where we are right now is in the north. And the other thing about the north and Galilee is that's where Jesus grew up. And all of a sudden, that's a problem. Because when suddenly the people don't like what Jesus is saying, and Jesus is saying, listen, if you really want to know God, you have to believe in the one who sent me. Then all of a sudden, they look at Jesus and like, well, well, who do you think you are? You're Joseph's boy. I know your mom. I know your dad. Uh, my, my cousins grew up down the street from where you grew up. I've seen you in the marketplace all of these years. You're just the carpenter's son. Who are you? And that proximity, that familiarity, that they suddenly look at this and say, well, Jesus, you can't be that big a deal. You're just from down the road. You've always been around. There's no big deal about Jesus. He is so familiar. He can't really be the answer to eternity. He's right there. Now, you and I don't have the Galilee problem. But for a bunch of us, we have what I would call the Sunday school problem. And that is, you remember when you were yay tall and your parents brought you to church and maybe you even went to church and they had the little flannel graph, the little picture of Jesus they would stick on the board and they'd have all the different characters and you drink little Kool-Aid cups and little cookies that had the circle and the hole in the middle and you put them on your fingers okay that might have been my church but, but, but you just kind of played those things and, and Jesus was part of these incredible familiar experiences of when you were a kid and so now as a grown-up, you're like, okay, i got to figure out where I'm going to anchor and, and put my life down. And someone says, well, have you thought about Jesus? You're like, well, Jesus, that, that's, <laughs> I mean, well, no, not really Jesus. I mean, I grew up in church, and, and I did all the Sunday school lesson things, and, and I go to church on a pretty regular basis. But, man, that, that's, that's kind of some old-fashioned stuff. And, in fact, you might even say, I would follow Jesus, but I need a new and improved Jesus. 
Uh, this, this old Jesus, this old-fashioned Jesus, this Jesus that they were talking about when I was a kid growing up, this Jesus that's just kind of always there, his pictures everywhere, that Jesus, well, that, no, I need something more exciting than that. I need something fresher than that. The answer is that Jesus is right there in front of you. And sometimes we don't give Jesus the honor because he's so familiar. Gary Smalley is a person who for years did marriage seminars. And one of the things that he would talk about is he would talk about how important it is to honor your spouse, to give them a value. And one of the ways he illustrated that is in a room like this would be full of people and and what he did is he he, he took this this old violin and he started to just kind of pass it down one row and everyone was just kind of passing it down the row and some folks couldn't tell if it was a banjo or a fiddle or whatever it was and they're they're just like I don't know what to do with this are the strings missing are they supposed to have this I I don't know whether did somebody shrink a cello I I don't know what this is and it is about the time that that the violins passed halfway through he says now be careful with that that's a Stradivarius Well, folks don't have to know a lot about fiddles to know that a Stradivarius is a big deal. And in that moment, this object that is just there without a whole lot of meaning, and it's just a fiddle, I don't know what to do with a violin, then all of a sudden it's identified and said, that is a Stradivarius. And you don't have to be able to spell Stradivarius. You don't know how to play that thing. But you know this for your whole life has been told is an object of extraordinary value. Some of us need to have that kind of moment when it comes to Jesus because he's so familiar and he's been so close in our lives for so long that we haven't understood that he is the answer He is the foundation. He is the key to all of life. At the end of the passage, you you heard it. There's a little bit of difficulty in it. At the end of the the passage, it, it says that at this, many of his disciples began to leave. This isn't just the crowd. These aren't people that just showed up yesterday. These are people who had said, I'll leave everything behind to follow you, Jesus. You are my rabbi. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. But when Jesus started talking about authority and he began to talk about priority and he began to talk about the fact that he was the answer to everything, a bunch of the disciples, now not, not the big 12 that you know the names of, but maybe you would have known their names if they hadn't hit the road. They, they, they were bunking with the 12. I mean, they, they were the same crew. And many of the disciples began to leave. And Jesus turns and he says to Peter, or he says to the 12, are you going to leave as well? And what Peter says is, Where else would we go? You are the one who have the words of life, and we have believed. You see, Peter was not perfect, 
and the disciples that stayed were not perfect. But they were in the process of working through that obstacle of authority that Jesus was in charge. They were in the process of working through that obstacle of priority that what Jesus offered was better than the stuff I was chasing after on my own. And they were working through that obstacle of proximity that this Jesus, who they could reach out and touch, who they ate meals with and told stories as they walked down the road, that Jesus was God who became flesh and came to take away the sins of the world. You know, one of the things that's a challenge for a person who teaches the Word of God and tries to explain who Jesus is, there's this incredible tension because we want to say two things at the same time. Have you ever tried to say two things at the same time? It, it, it makes a mess. One of the things that we want to say is, Following Jesus is easy. Even a child can follow Jesus. And at the same time, we want to say following Jesus is hard. And in fact, there are times that Jesus says, listen, the way of people who are not following me, that's a big old wide highway. But the way of following me is just this narrow path. And lots of folks hit the highway. And only a few find that path. So following Jesus is easy. And following Jesus is hard. It is easy because he has done the work. It's not like becoming a doctor where it's going to take you 11 years of school and all that kind of stuff. It's not like becoming an Olympic athlete where you have to train your whole life to do this. All you have to do is say in your heart is yes. I want to live under the authority and grace of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, it's hard because I have to work to the obstacle of authority, the obstacle of priority, and that obstacle of overlooking Jesus as the great gem of our lives. So I want to invite you to respond today. I want to invite you to respond to Jesus today. And I want you to say yes, because it's simple. All you have to do is say yes. He did the work. And he comes to give you a gift. But at the same time, he is asking to sit on the throne of your life and to be your true king not your errand boy, but your true king. But I will tell you, you'll never regret it. And you can say yes today.